Fran Leibowitz has a new series with Martin Scorsese. On this episode, she talks about working with him, why the show is dedicated to Toni Morrison, and what she looks for in a New York mayor. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Fran Leibowitz was born in 1950 and shot to prominence in the 70s for her witty essays collected in the books Metropolitan Life and Social Studies. Then came a writer's block that she also describes as being lazy. Instead of publishing, she now delivers her opinions in lectures and interviews. Ten years ago, Martin Scorsese sought to capture her conversational style in the documentary Public Speaking. This year comes their new collaboration called Pretend It's a City. Over seven short episodes, Fran and Marty conduct a series of conversations, some of them with an audience. Here's a clip in which Fran describes how she avoids the internet. When they first invented um, computers, I mean computers in people's houses, um, they were called word processors. Right. And a friend of mine got one, and she said, you have to see this thing. She said, I went over to her house, and she showed me this thing. And what it looked like to me, and what it was kind of at the time, was a very fast kind of typewriter. Yeah. But I didn't have a typewriter. I never had the old machines. So I didn't have a typewriter. I wrote with a ballpoint pen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I don't need this. This is just a very fast typewriter. I don't even have a typewriter because I don't know how to type. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm not getting into this. So I, of course not knowing. I didn't know the whole world was going to go into this machine. You know. <laughs> so it did, but it was little by little. I wasn't really noticing it. And now the whole world is it. And now people say, and now you don't know about these things. You know, but it isn't true because people are constantly telling me about these things. So I know about these things, or I know as much as I want to. I know more than I want to. It's like, to me, it's like the Kardashians. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I've never seen the Kardashians, but I know about the Kardashians. Well, we know about them, yeah. Okay, and yeah, that's the way I feel it. about the internet. Yeah. Which I know, in some way, is connected to the Kardashians. I spoke to Fran in May, just as New York City was starting to reopen. I was at my home in New Jersey, the state where she grew up. She was in Manhattan at the office of Netflix, where her PR team had set her up on Zoom. Of course, we couldn't help talking about vaccines. The idea that people are opposed to vaccines is a shocking thing. It's a really shocking thing to me. And it's not that old. I mean, people started being opposed to vaccines, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Vaccines for children. They they didn't even have it. The vaccines children now get for like measles and chickenpox and stuff. They didn't have one nice job. So I had all these things. Believe me, I'd rather have a vaccine. They, anything they would invent a vaccine for, I would get. I'd rather have a vaccine than any illness. So there's no illness that sounds like, oh, I'd rather have the illness. <laughs> and certainly COVID is such a horrible illness, you know, that I definitely would rather have the vaccine. And then someone said, well, you know, you're going to have to have one every year. So what? So I'll have one every year. year. I pay taxes every three months. If I can pay taxes every three months, I can get a vaccine once a year. The filming of Pretend It's a City mostly took place before the pandemic. We see Fran in classic New York locations, such as the wood-paneled Players Club and Grand Central Station. She also takes a walk on a scale model of the city at the Queens Museum. The series interweaves clips with her in conversations with others. One recurring figure is Toni Morrison, who died in 2019. Here's a clip of Fran interviewing the Nobel Prize winner at the New York Public Library. Once I asked you 
because you often express how much you like to write, not a thing writers frequently say. Um, <laughs> and I asked you why you like to write so much, and you said, because otherwise, I'm stuck with life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah. well, I have to say that after I finished the first book I wrote, The Bluest Eye, there was a period of melancholy that was very profound. And I all, now I know, I can anticipate that feeling at the close of a novel, um, and at the close of the last revision, that constant picking over and picking over and making sure it's this word and not that word. Um, but it's true. Stuck with life may be a little strong, Fran, but it's certainly... I'm just quoting you uh, accurately. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Fran to describe their friendship. My relationship with Tony was central to my life. You know, I mean, it was, um, you know, uh, and I actually do remember exactly where I met Tony and when I met Tony. And that friendship also was instantaneous. You know, the second we met, we did a reading together um, that was put together, not by us, but by something which I, it may still exist. There was something, there was or is something called the American Academy of Poets. And they had sent me a letter. <clears throat> this was in 1978. It was an actual letter, paper letter, came in the mail. Um, I received it. Uh, same way for this reading series, you know, uh, would you like to read? And so I called the guy on the phone uh, and I said, yes, I would like to do it. And he said, well, we always have two people reading at each event. Um, and do you know who Tony Morrison is? Because she wasn't that well known then. So I said, yes, I do. He said, do you like her work? I said, I love her work. He said, would you like to read with her? I said, no. That is a ridiculous combination. Like, we have, like, nothing in common. Don't you think that's a bizarre combination? He said, we don't. We think it'd be a good combination. Do you object to it? I said, no. So we did it, and it actually turned out to be a great combination. And after the reading, Tony said, this is a great combination. Let's go on the road, which we didn't do. Um, but we did, like, you know, a few nights later, have dinner. Um, and so that was, you know, I mean, when Tony died, um, we had been friends for 40 years. And what held the two of you together? What would you talk about with Tony Morrison? You know, everything. One thing about Tony that people really didn't know because, you know, as, and certainly as time went on, she had such a, um, you know, Tony didn't have like fans, you know, Tony had like congregants, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, Tony was, you know, revered. You know, and Tony, you know, had a very kind of grand public presence. Um, so the people would like say like, well, what's she like? And I would always say, this is the truth. Tony is really fun. She's really fun. But this was something like really not apparent, you know, if you just saw Tony in a public place or if you just read her, you know. Um, so, I mean, you know, she was really fun and we had fun. Um, we talked about everything, uh, you know, I mean, really, it was a very, very close friendship. And uh, we talked, uh, about absolutely everything. Um, uh, Tony, we, you know, a long time ago, you know, when I used to go to the movies all the time, so did Tony, we went to the movies all the time. Um, Tony watched television, all that. This is the thing people didn't know about Tony, is how much television she watched. <laughs> Tony, who was one of the only wise person I've ever known, and certainly one of the smartest people I've ever known, and certainly a great writer, watched more TV than anyone I've ever known. Because she had this policy not to read while she was writing. She thought it was not good for her writing to read. So when she wasn't writing, she watched TV. And I mean, TV, stuff you wouldn't like 
I couldn't imagine anyone would watch. Um, I don't mean like, you know, great, you know, big time. I mean, like every kind of junk that could be on TV, Tony watch. Um, so I would try to dissuade her from some of this. And in the last year of Tony's life, and what deck, um, I spent a lot of time trying to get her to stop watching the news because I said, Tony, this is killing you. It is killing you. You know, she was watching MSNBC all the time because the country was riveted on the disastrous Trump administration. And Tony was, you know, completely fixated on it. And I said, you know, it's not, we all do this. We're compelled to do this, you know, but it's really bad for your health. But she continued to do it. And so um, I believe that um, uh, Donald Trump killed Tony. In Pretend It's a City, a central theme is Fran's relationship to New York and the way the city has changed in her lifetime. You know, I was trying to convince a friend's daughter to move back to New York from LA. She said, I want to move back to New York, and, uh, but I can't afford it. So I said, move back to New York. Let me tell you something. No one can afford to live in New York. That's right. No one can afford to live in New York. Yet, eight million people do. <laughs> How do we do this? We don't know. We don't know. It's a mystery to us. We don't have a clue. And, and that's just, we don't know, but you know, we, we're still here. I asked Fran how the pandemic has shaped her opinion of the city. Well, I, my opinion about New York hasn't changed. Because New York has changed, you know. My opinion about New York is, you know, that, you know, it's New York. I don't care what you say, it's New York. And that's it. This is New York, okay? So is New York uh, gonna change? Yes. New York is always changing. That's one of the things that makes it New York. Is it going to change, you know, more dramatically because of the pandemic? Of course. So is everywhere, by the way, not just New York. Um, and everywhere else that's also going to change is going to not be New York. So <clears throat> uh, what's going to happen in the future? I do not know. Because if I knew the future, I would not be here. I would be at my villa in Tuscany because I would have chosen the right lottery number, which I never do. So, uh, you know, uh, but I certainly do not think and never thought, even at the height of the pandemic, you know, New York is over to me. It's just an incredibly idiotic statement. It's ridiculous. Well, you know, it's interesting, the locations uh, that uh, you and Martin Scorsese chose for this film, the Players Club, New York Public Library, Grand Central Station, Argosy Books, you know, all of them that evoke, a, you know, kind of grander old New York that is is actually harder to find. I, I think of some young person outside the city who watches the series and comes to New York looking for that milieu and uh, it's gonna take them some efforts to, uh, uh, to, to find it. Good. <laughs> That's why we've made. I mean, um, you know, uh, Marty chose locations, not me. Um, uh, the only location I chose by which I mean I suggested to Marty um, was that, uh, you know, diorama of New York City or whatever, it's not a diorama, but oh. that kind of miniature in New York, that's it, um, in the, at the Queens Museum. Um, uh, and I also suggested, you know, those things that are in the sidewalk because Marty never noticed them. Um, but uh, other than that, Marty chose the Players Club, he chose the library. And in fact, when we were on the way to the library, I said to Marty, I don't really understand your idea for the library. What's your idea about the library? And he said, I don't really have an idea. And of course, I knew that wasn't true, you know, but he must have thought, I'm not gonna really tell her. So we'll just see what happens. 
And so, you know, obviously, you know, Marty is not just a director, he's a great director, but I'm not even a bad one. I'm not a director at all. So I, you know, like at a certain point, because Marty spends much, much more time editing than shooting. So, you know, you shoot, the shooting is like one day to 8 million editing days. So, you know, um, at a certain point I was, was watching some of it. And when we go into the, there's a, a part of the library that we went into in, in the series. Um, I forget what it's called, but it, it's like the um, genealogy department, which I never right. knew existed. But, and um, when I first saw it, there's the two doors that you enter to get into that room and they have these round windows. And when we got there, I looked through the window and Marty did, who was standing next to me. So when I first saw it, I saw a shot of us with our faces in these little round windows. He said, look at that, it's not lucky. Isn't this a great shot? And he looked at me like, lucky? This is lucky. Of course, when I never, and I never see the camera, it's not that it's not, it's not that it's hidden. I never pay attention to it. It never interests me, it doesn't bother me. It's a machine, I don't care about machines. So of course, I didn't realize that if Marty was saying to me, let's walk down the hall. We're gonna walk down the hall now. We're gonna look in the window. That Marty had a camera on the other side. You know, someone was using a camera on the other side. I never thought about it. And in fact, with Tony, uh, I did something with Tony that was in public speaking, the, uh, the documentary feature he made with me. And it was just me and Tony on the stage at the Directors Guild. And when it was over, Tony said, oh boy, didn't those cameras drive you crazy? And I said, what cameras? And I didn't notice them. And Marty had five cameras. And you know, there were five people on the stage running around, whatever. And I just don't pay attention to them. You know? And uh, Tony was very uh, annoyed by it, but it didn't bother me. And I just never, like, <clears throat> like, when we're making public speaking, Marty said, Marty said to me, I hope you realize, this is after we shot it, that I told the crew not to laugh because I don't want laughs on the film. I want it to be, come from the audience. So I said, well, crew, what are you talking about? He said, did you not notice all the people kneeling around the room with the cameras and stuff? I said, not really. I didn't really notice because I know that all that stuff has nothing to do with me. So I don't have to think about it. You know, and that's someone else's job. I'm not thinking about it. To me, that's like, there must be some scientist in charge of that because that cannot be something I'm in charge of. Um, so it doesn't bother me because I don't pay attention to it. And I don't have the same, obviously, mind that Marty has. I don't think in these terms. I don't look at something and think that would be a great shot. I just don't. It doesn't come to me. You know, the same way that I'm not a composer, music doesn't come into my mind. So do, um, do you watch the series when it's done? Do you enjoy watching uh, yourself in a, in a film? I hate it. I hate it. And I, I've never seen this on Netflix, but uh, I've seen it, you know, five billion times in five billion different forms, you know, because he spent like two years editing this, Pretend It's a City. So I kept seeing it over and over in different forms. I cannot stand to watch myself. And I never could, not even when I was young. So a lot of people my age, they don't want to see themselves, but I never did. I also, you know, uh, I can't stand listening to myself. You know, I also don't want to hear what I am saying because I already know what I said because I said it. Um, and um, no, I do not enjoy it. I, you know, I know that there are actors who watch th themselves. They watch the movies they made and stuff. I don't know how you could do that. 
I but, mean, even if you look like a movie star, what difference it make? You still have to watch yourself. But you did watch it. I mean, were, when, were you watching it for the purpose of giving creative feedback or just making sure that something wasn't horrible about it? No, I actually had uh, contractually the ability to um, have an opinion about these things, you know, so, uh, so that, uh, I mean, I, and sometimes I would say I didn't like something, you know, but I, when I saw it, in the, you know, when it's being edited, I saw it in pieces, you know, and then when, I'm <clears throat> sorry, then when Marty said it was finished, um, I saw the whole thing through, I think, twice. But I have never seen it on Netflix. So, I, you know, um, and of course, you know, uh, we made it way before the virus. I mean, shot it. They edited it partially before and then partially during. Um, and Marty was concerned uh, because New York was so different after the virus. And, but Marty had not seen New York because Marty did not leave his house for like, I don't know, eight months. I mean, did not put his foot out the door um, uh, from whatever, March 12th, uh, you know, 2019 until, you know, months, months later. So I was out all the time, you know, just walking around the empty city, you know, because it was so shocking to see. So Marty sent Ellen Kuras, who's the cinematographer, out at, uh, during the lockdown to film. And then, you know, so he could see it. And uh, Marty said, what do you think of this? I, I illegally went to Marty's office, which you weren't allowed to go to because it was closed, but Marty wasn't there, he was at his house. And someone else illegally met me there, although we stayed thousands of miles away from each other. So I could watch it because I don't have any of this, you know, these computers that you can watch it on. So Marty said, what did you think? And I said, you know, it's beautiful because she's a great cinematographer, you know, so the footage is beautiful. You never saw New York, New York like this morning, but it doesn't look like this now. So already like two weeks later, it already looked different. I said, I think we should do nothing. We're not journalists. It's not our job to keep up to date on the news. I think we should ignore it. I don't think we should, you know, that you should put something, a date in, you know, to say this is before uh, the virus. Any one in the world can see this is before the virus. And I just think we should skip it. The virus is not our fault. You know, even I was not blamed for it. And I'm blamed for many things. So the virus is not our fault. Um, we have nothing to do with it. Uh, and just, you know, do, you know, just show it the way that it was meant to be shown and people can figure out that it was before the virus. Uh, New York has a primary election for their mayor uh, coming up in a, a little over than a month. Um, I'm curious what you're looking for in a new mayor. Well, the main thing I'm looking for is not Andrew Yang. This is, you know, this is the kind of thing that makes me lose faith in New Yorkers. Like if Andrew Yang was happening like in Portland or something, I think, well, but I mean, are you kidding me? He has no more, there's no more reason for Andrew Yang to be the mayor of New York City than there is for me to win the Super Bowl. Okay, I mean, zero. There is zero reason he should be the mayor of New York. It is, it's absurd. It's not even funny. It's not even a good joke. It's just totally ridiculous, you know. So uh, I know, or at least, you know, up until, you know, when I came in here, I'm at Netflix, um, 
you know, I came in here, you know, I think around noon or something. Um, up until then, he was still leading in the polls, I think, Andrew Yang, perhaps by now he's not. Um, but um, I don't believe he's going to win, and I certainly hope he's not going to win. It's ridiculous. It's, it's just ridiculous. And the reason he's leading in the polls is because he has the most name recognition because he ran for president. He ran for president. So he starts out running for president, even though before he ran for president, he had done nothing. You know, it, the presidency of the United States should be the culmination of a career, not like the first job you have. Not like, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do. Let me be the president until I figure out what a good career for myself would be. So a lot of people uh, thought he was some kind of big tech guy, but apparently he's not. Not that I want a big tech guy to be the mayor of New York, but he's not even a big tech guy. He's not even a tech guy. He's not even a little tech guy. He is no one. But no one, I don't mean he's not a human being deserving of the respect that a human being deserves. I'm saying he has no accomplishments. He is not a lawyer. He is not, he's not even a businessman. Not that I want a businessman to be the mayor of New York. But I mean, he doesn't even have any politics as far as I can tell. You know, these, someone said to me, well, he has these good ideas. I said, really, what's, what are his ideas? Well, you know, the universal guaranteed income or something like that. I said, first of all, that's not an idea. Okay, that's a notion. Second of all, if that was to be put into effect, that's a federal thing. You can't do that city by city. That's ridiculous. You know, not that it's, it might be a good idea to have some small amount of money. And believe me, this is a small amount of money. If people think they can live on this. If you think you live on this in New York, you've never been to New York. So maybe this is a good like amount of money to live on in, I don't know, Alabama or something, but it's not a good idea amount to New York. Uh, that, but that's not an idea. New York, the mayor of New York City is the second hardest job in the country after the presidency. You know, and you see what happens when you have someone unqualified to do that job, which we have now. You know, we now have Bill de Blasio, who is, I don't know how to put this nicely, a moron. And the only good thing about de Blasio is that he's the most uniting figure in American politics. Because everyone hates him. Everyone hates him. Republicans hate him, Democrats hate him, Black people hate him, White people hate him, Men hate him, Women hate him, he, poor people hate him, Rich people, everyone hates him. We're united in our hatred of Bill de Blasio. So he does a bad job for everyone, you know, so that um, he, he's really unpopular and deservedly so. And I voted for him both times because he's a Democrat, but the first time I voted for him um, enthusiastically. You know, because the politics he espoused are, I thought, very good politics. The first big thing he did, which was also turns out eight years later to be the last big thing he did, was the universal pre-K. It's great. It's a great idea. It's a really good thing. It's an important thing. And then it was all downhill after that. And uh, so we have 20 people running. You know, this is always a mistake to have all these people running. You know, um, we also have something that we've never had before called ranked voting, which is a horrible idea, which I voted against. It was on the ballot. I voted against it. Of course, I almost never vote for the thing that wins. So of course it passed. You know, the people, I didn't, I can't say that I really understood the ranked voting. I voted against it because the politicians wanted it. So I thought if they want this, it must be bad. Fran has lived in New York for over 50 years, but her conversation often harkens back to her childhood in Morristown, New Jersey. You know, people very often have said to me, you know, did your parents want you to be a writer? No. Did they try to dissuade you? No. Really, what do they want you to be? A wife. They wanted me to be a wife. They assumed I would be a wife. They wanted me to be a wife. 
So they never told me anything or instructed me in anything other than things that would make me be a wife. Um, and you can see that it didn't work out for them. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think in a way, it was not a great thing to be a little girl in the 50s at all. Uh, but the good thing about it was that they just didn't pay attention to you that much. Fran's childhood stories emphasize her will to escape, but they also convey an affection for her mother, who lived a long life and passed away when Fran was in her late 60s. I asked her to describe that relationship. That generation of American women, I didn't really understand, truthfully, until I got older. You know, because I think that, that generation of American women was much more, um, oppressed is quite a strong word, but much more oppressed, if you want to use that word, than the previous generation. Because it was after the Second World War, you know, and before that, you know, because all the men in the country were at, you know, for fighting in the war, um, women had more jobs and more job opportunities. And in fact, were not just allowed to have jobs, but were encouraged because someone had to make all these things that men weren't making. Um, and of course, you know, this country, they discovered, yes, you know what? It turns out that women can actually make these things because they made all the stuff that we used to win the war. But now that the men are back, oh, you know what? How can a woman make these things? So they took all this stuff away, you know, from, from women. And, you know, they made this idea of the American family. And I wouldn't say everybody, but like 99% of people try to abide by this. Not just white people, black people, all people, you know. Uh, this was the, not just the right way to live, but the, these were the fruits of victory. This is what we have because we won the Second World War. And now we're the most important country in the world. And we saved everybody from the Nazis and, you know, uh, which is true, thank you. Um, but, uh, and because of this, you have to stay in the house. You have to take care of the kids. Men of my father, my father was a very lovely man. He was really a lovely man. But my father would no more have done anything in the house then he would have like tried to fly out the window. I mean, after dinner, my father who didn't move a muscle, he would never do that. I mean, I once said to him, how come daddy doesn't have to help with the dishes? And my father said, if I wanted to do dishes, I wouldn't have had two daughters. Like this was not considered a bad thing to say at all. This was just stating the obvious. You know, um, luckily I had no brothers because then I would have had to see the brother not also doing the, you know, the dishes. So, um, and my mother just, I think, got caught in that, and I caught, but I mean, that was the age she was. You know, how old you are um, is such a defining thing in your life. I don't mean how old you are at this moment, obviously, but, you know, um, for instance, at Toni Morrison's funeral, a friend of hers uh, who was at the funeral, who's a very radical filmmaker um, and a very good friend of Toni's, uh, said to me, he was crying. We were crying. It was Tony's funeral. But he said to me, Fran, why, why was Tony for Joe Biden? He was so upset by this because he's this very radical black guy. And I said, you know, you never think about people, what age they are. To Tony, the age he was, Joe Biden wasn't the guy that he is to young people. 
wasn't the guy who who was horrible to Anita Hill, which is who he was to me, you know, uh, wasn't the guy who, who promoted this crime bill, you know, this horrible crime bill. But to Tony's generation, he was the guy who pushed back on those Southern senators. You know, I mean, to someone young, not enough. He didn't do enough, you know, but, you know, they can't envision what uh, the Senate was like then, you know, and what the Southern Democrats were like. And he pushed back on them. Did he succeed? No, we still haven't succeeded with those kind of people. You know, so, but Tony remembered that and appreciated that and liked him for that. And, you know, <clears throat> was Tony like a less interested, you know, in racial justice and this guy, of course not, you know, but she had different parameters because she was the age she was. And so I think it's, it would be nice, not that it's gonna happen, that when people think about all these things that, and they think about what people say or think or do, think what age are they? You know, what is their, how is their sensibility in any, every way formed, formed much more by the era that you grew up in than it is by anything else. And were, how old were you were, when you could have that perspective on your own mother? Because, uh, you know, lots of times- Old, old. I was old. It's, a, it's so hard to see your parents, I think. You know, it's really hard. I mean, it's maybe less hard now because people have much closer relationship with their parents in the sense of like a more kind of collegial relationship. You know, the distance between uh, children and parents when I was a child was enormous. You know, because, you know, they were in charge and you were not. So, you know, I, for instance, didn't even think I, of my house as my house. In other words, it was their house. You know, I mean, I lived there, you know, but I never thought the things were mine. You know, they were, they were not mine. They were theirs. You know, how could they have been mine? And, and we'd ask for everything. We never felt, you know, we'd ask permission for every single thing, you know, I always say like, this is how I would, and also they were constantly issuing instructions. You know, they thought their job was to make us behave. You know, to take these wild animals that had somehow come into the house and make them behave, to civilize them. And so there were from morning to night instructions, uh, every kind of thing, manners, grammar, you know, these things were like paramount. So I say, here's what my childhood was like. I would say to my mother, can I please have an apple? And my mother would say, may I please have an apple? And I would say, may I please have an apple? And she would say, no, that was it. So, you know, it was her apples and I said it incorrectly. And what this did to me really is all day long, every day of my life, in my mind, I'm correcting people's grammar. It drives me crazy. And I think, can't you hear how wrong this is? And of course, they can hear how wrong it was because they didn't have my mother saying to them like 24 hours a day, nay, you know, no, we, not you, not the, I mean, so that this was very, very important. And my parents were both first-generation Americans. And I think that it was very important to them um, to be as absolutely American as possible, you know, and as absolutely um, uh, uh, conventionally behaved as possible. Thank Fran Leibowitz for speaking with me. Her new series, Pretend It's a City, is now streaming on Netflix. 
Our conversation was recorded for the DocNYC Spring Showcase that covers 14 prominent new documentaries. You can learn more at docnyc.net. Thanks to our team, series producer, Hannah Norton-Swan, social media coordinator, Elizabeth Schifrin, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.